This episode of Literary Treks is brought to you by Audible.com, offering more than 180,000 titles for smartphone, tablet, and desktop. To get a free audiobook of your choice and to help Trek FM at the same time, visit audibletrial.com slash trekfm. And also by Enterprise in Space, an international program of the nonprofit National Space Society. Find out how you can help science and education and become a virtual crew member aboard the NSS Enterprise Orbiter by visiting enterpriseinspace.org. And if you want to join the conversation and share your thoughts on this episode, join the Babel Conference, our listeners group on Facebook. Just type B-A-B-E-L into the Facebook search field. We look forward to seeing you there. Hey everyone, I'm Rod Roddenberry and you're listening to Trek FM. some light reading in case I got bored. Welcome everyone to another episode of Literary Treks, your dedicated Star Trek books and comics show here on the Trek FM network. I'm just one of your hosts, Dan Gunther, and joining me as he does every week is the wonderful, resplendent, fresh from seeing Star Trek Discovery, Bruce Gibson. Bruce, how's it going today? It's going great. Yes, as we record this, I'm just Coming back from Los Angeles, seeing the preview, the premiere of Discovery. It was wonderful. It was great. All that stuff. Of course, everybody who's listening to this now, I hope you've watched Discovery. And because uh, we'll touch a little bit on that when we talk about our feature today. Yeah, definitely. And uh, so, yeah, as we're recording this, it hasn't come out yet. But uh, Bruce luckily got to go to the premiere and I'm insanely jealous. But uh Soon, soon we will all be able to see it. And of course, like Bruce said, you guys already all have. So I'm jealous of everybody here right now. Not just Bruce, but the people listening to my voice. <laughs> so let's just get to the news and I'm not going to dwell on it. <laughs> yeah, because I don't want you to get depressed. <laughs> yeah. So we have uh, some news for the December comics coming out from IDW. Uh, we've got Boldly Go number 15 is coming out. And I don't know if you got a chance to look at this cover, Bruce, but what did you think of this cover with these kind of robot, it looks like robot Spock, Kirk, and Uhura. I'm looking at it right now for the first time. It's kind of weird, you know? Yeah, they're, it's like they've been dipped in silver. (laughs) Yeah, they're like silver surfer slash robot Star Trek people right so i'm very curious because <laughs> this is part of the idic mini series it says it's part three of six mm-hmm. so yeah the idic series is that one that takes place over multiple colliding realities and apparently one of them yeah we've got these silver surfer robot people so that looks interesting also coming in december we have another new visions comic from john byrne this one's called the hunger uh, and it 
goes as follows. For thousands of years, it had drifted above the outer rim of the galaxy, draining life from all the worlds it found there. Now it has learned of the banquet of populous planets near the heart of the Milky Way, and is heading there at terrifying speed, with only the Enterprise standing in its way. So that's The Hunger coming in December. Uh, what do you think of that one? I'm very interested to read this. I mean, it, I mean, I, I don't know. The teaser didn't really do anything for me, but <laughs> you know, I'm just kind of like, okay, well, let's let's check it out because I mean, these new visions have been pretty good and and interesting recently. So I went, and especially since we talked about photo novels not that long ago, it's like you know, I'm kind of into this right now. Hmm. Yeah. Definitely. And also coming in December is Star Trek Discovery number three. This is a regular sized issue, 32 pages at $3.99, written by Mike Johnson and Kirsten Beyer, with art by Tony Shasteen. Uh, so a very short blurb for this one. The official comics tie-in to the blockbuster new Star Trek television show continues here. Secrets of the new characters are revealed as Star Trek embarks on a bold new journey. How, how so, do they know it's a blockbuster already? yeah exactly and man giving nothing away you know actually that reminds me this is a little rant time uh i always wonder when we get novelizations of movies and stuff it it always says the hit new movie from blah 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 and the movie hasn't come out yet how do they know you know like yeah anyway that's one of my uh little rants anyway star trek discovery number three will come with four different covers uh there we don't get any previews of them at this time but we have four variant covers cover a by tony shastine cover b is a photo cover a ships of the line cover by declan shalvey and jordi belair and a variant cover by george kaltsudis so yeah interesting gotta collect them all yep all four (laughs) excellent well we also got a new comic this week to review and that one is boldly go number 11 and this one kind of goes back to those early days of the ongoing comic where they took an element from the original series and explored it in a new and different way and this one covers a character we've seen before in the original series episode whom gods destroy and that is captain or dare i say lord garth of izar (laughs) (laughs) what were your initial impressions of this comic bruce okay so i got to the first page and uh i see the captain there and i thought okay this is this somebody we've seen before and i thought maybe it was uh kelsey grammar a younger kelsey grammar (laughs) Uh, what is it? Batesman? Bateman? What was his name? Was that it? Captain? Morgan Bateson. Yeah, yeah. Bateson. And, uh, but no. So then, of course, we figure out it's it's not him. It's Captain Garth, which sounds really odd to say Captain Garth. He's actually, no, he's, is he a Commodore? No, he's Captain in this. Captain, yeah. So, um, yeah, it was kind of good to see that. And they're in the uniforms that are very similar to what we saw on the USS Kelvin in mm-hmm. the Star Trek 09 movie. Yeah. And interestingly enough, they, they actually borrow some stuff from the novel universe. In the novel Garth of Izar, he was in command of the USS Heisenberg at the Battle of Axanar. 
And we see here he's in command of the Heisenberg. And I kind of wonder, does the dedication plaque to the Heisenberg, does it have the motto, I'm the one who knocks? (laughs) Well, you just put it out there in the universe and maybe we'll see that someday. I really hope so. That would make me happy. (laughs) (laughs) Excellent. Well, we don't want to get into spoilers for this comic for sure. It's um, basically quick overview. We see Garth at the Battle of Axanar. And then we kind of flash forward to uh, Kirk's time at the Academy and his meeting with Captain Garth. And we know from the original series episode, Garth visits the planet Antos. And basically that's where he goes insane and he learns this shape-shifting ability. And much the same happens here, but I would say in a different way, or it's revealed in a different way from the original series episode. So... Uh, you know, like I said, I don't want to give too much away. It's the first part of an ongoing story. Looks like it's going to be kind of an interesting story going forward. What did you, what did you think of how it tackled the story of Captain Garth? Well, of course, because it's a different timeline, it doesn't play out exactly what we saw in the prime timeline, but there is, uh, some references back to characters that we met in the ongoing series and then tying it in with Captain Garth and I started to wonder if he was going to veer off something totally different but then I saw how it brings it back to what we saw in the original series episode Uh, and that's you know like you said there's a different part to it so it's definitely an interesting setup to the story so I'm very curious to see what's gonna how this is gonna play out now that it's been set up Mm -hmm. yeah definitely I'm there's it, it's all, it's pretty much all set up. So we're getting into the situation and yeah, by the end, I'm curious to see where this goes next. Um, Garth has never been really someone I've been really fascinated with. Yeah, me either. The, <laughs> I mean, Whom Gods Destroy is not a strong episode, no. but it does establish some interesting things about Starfleet history and Garth's past. So, you know kind of interested but we'll see where it goes from here i guess yeah and you know it's again you know kirk isn't in command of the enterprise uh and we're we're showing that it looks like you know they start talking about how they're going to eventually go back to the enterprise once it's ready and then he'll have to leave some of the crew of the endeavor behind and he's gotten to like them and got to know them. And, it, you know, the two crews intermingling and then they'll have to separate at some point. So I kind of like that setup that, you know, at some point here in the near future, he's going to go back to the Enterprise, which, of course, probably won't happen until we get a commitment on this fourth movie. Where is that? Hmm. Yeah, that's kind of what I'm wondering is. Is the story is the the boldly go series kind of in limbo until we get that figured out so yeah i don't know will the fourth movie show them taking command of the new enterprise or will it be they're already out there on the new enterprise i guess until we know that we're really not sure how this comic story is gonna end up wrapping up yeah and i don't think they know that and i don't mean idw but i think cbs in general i don't think anybody well not cbs paramount uh, I don't think mm-hmm. they know that in general, but I would expect that 
when we get a fourth movie, no, no, notice I said when, not if, because I'm trying to mm-hmm. be optimistic here. But if when, I'm sorry, when we get the fourth movie, I think it's just <laughs> going to be they're on the ship. I don't think it's going to be, you know, some kind of story like Star Trek uh, four where they play it the whole movie and then we can get to the Enterprise at the end. It's now, right, you know, I think it's going to be mm. they're on the A. That's my guess, too, because we do see at the end of Beyond in that fast motion thing, the Enterprise gets built and then launches and then flies around through the credits. So, yeah, they'll they'll probably be on the ship. But, uh, yeah, hopefully we hear something about a fourth movie soon. Of course, other big things are happening in the Star Trek universe right now. So, you know, wait for that to to kind of pass, I guess, first. Speaking of those other things going on in the Star Trek universe, uh, our feature today ties in a little bit to that part of the reason we chose the novel we did. So what do you say we jump over to to the feature and welcome our special guest? Ooh, I like special guests. So today we're discussing a classic novel, a hardcover novel published back in March of 1994. And that one is Sarek by A.C. Crispin, definitely a veteran Star Trek author and well-known for some very memorable stories throughout the Trek literary universe. And joining us for this conversation today is friend of the show and second time guest now, Justin Ozer. Justin, welcome to the show. Uh, Great to be here. Thanks for having me back. And now I am officially an associate producer. So what you said last time (laughs) was true. (laughs) I won't stick my foot in my mouth this time and and call you out as such. Just predicting the future, Uh, that's all. Yeah, exactly. I'm I'm present. I I've mastered space and time somehow, or something like that. <laughs> Justin, would you like a cup of Earl Grey? Yes, I'd like it hot, please. <laughs> <laughs> See, now we're going to get Dayton and Amy mad at us because they've called us out for not having a properly stocked green room, and now we're now we're offering tea to Justin. So yeah, you know, Dayton is back <laughs> there still asking us. for the mini bar. Any progress on that? Well, I, I told him that, you know, in addition to the peanut M&Ms that I tossed in there, uh, I'm going to try and palm some of those mini bottles of vodka off of uh, f- the next time I fly. And uh, those Cheez-Its, they always hand out Cheez-Its and I hate them. So, you know, we'll throw those in there. Well, I did see him back there. I, I found him hiding because he, he always hides. And I found him hiding behind a couch and I said, you know, I have some Earl Grey. And he said, yeah, try again. So I guess he's not wanting the Earl Grey. So I have to find something maybe a little harder. Earl Grey with drink. a shot of vodka? May, I think mm. he would like that. <laughs> awesome. Well, as I mentioned, we're talking about Sarek today. And I kinda wanted to start it I kinda wanted to start out by asking, um, what is your experience with this novel? Have you read it before? Is this your first time? Or, you know, how are you coming to this novel? Um, Justin, why don't we start with you? Yeah, so this was my second time reading it. Uh, The first time I read it actually was only a couple months ago. I've just kind of been cycling through different books that I find at thrift stores or that people recommend. And um, I read it a couple months ago. And it was an interesting experience to to reread it and and see what I got out of it this time. Awesome. Yeah, I read it uh, when it came out in 94. And I haven't read it since until now. You know, again, it's one of these things where you read so many of these novels and 
not something that you've read 20 years ago. You remember little bits and pieces, but not the whole thing. So it's always great now to go back and reread these and go, oh, yeah, I remember this. Or I don't remember this part at all, but this is interesting. So that's a lot of fun. Yeah, uh, this is actually my first time reading this novel. So I've never read this before uh, just this past week. And yeah, definitely a lot of thoughts about about this book for sure. So uh, great experience reading it for the first time too, I have to say. So another thing that I wanted to talk a little bit about was uh, the time period that this book takes place in. So we're post Star Trek VI, the Klingons and the Federation have entered in the Kittimer Peace Accords and there's kind of detente going on. We're post to the explosion of Praxis. The Klingon homeworld is still threatened. And a big part of that peace process is the Federation, of course, helping out the Klingon Empire and ensuring their survival. And one thing that struck me as odd with this novel is if you watch Star Trek VI, they're all retiring and the ship's going to be decommissioned. But in this book, along with some other novels that also take place after Star Trek VI. The crew is still out there doing missions. Kirk's still the captain, Spock's his first officer. The whole crew is still together on the Enterprise, except, of course, for Sulu, who's presumably off on the Excelsior doing his captain-y stuff. But uh, I notice a lot of other novels, there's a lot of novels that are like the final mission of Captain Kirk and crew. There's like 20 of them by now. Uh, But this one doesn't even take that tack. It's just they're still out there doing missions. Yeah, they don't what address think it. Of that? Yeah, they don't address why, you know, they're still there. Because you're right, there's several novels that take place after, quote, they're retired, but they're still on the <laughs> ship. And I think I remember one novel where, you know, they're being called back, you know, they, they're just, you know, okay, guys, it's, it's time to do this. It's time to go back. And they're resisting. But yeah, this does. This is just yeah. They're still out there. It's never addressed why they still have the ship, and I think there was a bit of an indication here um, that retirement's coming soon. But um, I don't know why they kept doing that. Yeah. I, I, mm-hmm. I don't really. You know, one book would be fine, but because there's so many, including this, it it really just stretches it. I guess because at the end of six, they you know at the end they didn't really turn around. They just kept going. Yeah, you know, Dan, I I had noticed this aspect as well. And for me, I haven't read all that many novels that are supposed to take place in that kind of short window between the end of Star Trek VI and the start of of Generations. And I was like, okay, they're out there. Why? What's going on? What did I miss? (laughs) And, you know, I I guess, you know, as I was reading about it more, um, there's what, some kind of explanation in Best Destiny that they're something comes up on their way back and they have to, and I guess they yeah, just they, keep going out there. Why not? Right. Yeah. Like I think in best destiny, they were headed back and then they detected the bill of rights, uh, you know, ship their distress call. <laughs> not like a big like copy that. of the bill of rights in space. Oh yeah. No, no. <laughs> the USS bill of rights. Um, <laughs> Hey, and Lincoln, you can have a Lincoln. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> But in, in this novel, I if I recall correctly, there's like one line I noticed yeah. where I forget who it was was talking to Kirk, but they say something like, oh, I was really pleased to hear that you were still going to be out there doing things. Like, yep. <laughs> yeah, yeah. It's great, it's great. isn't it? Yep. Yeah. And that was it. Yeah. <laughs> it's like, okay. Yeah. It struck me as a little odd, but but you know, I I do like this this setting because what you get to see is things like, you know, seeing Kronos and there's this 
ring of debris around it from Praxis exploding. And just thinking about that and all the reverberations and everything they have to deal with is kind of interesting. So even if they have to kind of wave it for why they're still out there, it's I think it's still a pretty interesting period to look at. Mm-hmm. And the political landscape is really, yeah. you know, full of possibilities. So, yeah, I'm really happy to see it at this time, too. And And then the other thing I noticed in here is... It seemed it was an era, an error, not an era, but an error. It was the, um, they kept referring to really the events of Star Trek three as being three years ago. Now this is 2293 mm-hmm. and they keep saying about, oh yeah, three years ago, Kirk fought Krug, you know. Wasn't it all, like you know. seven or eight years between those two? Yeah. yeah, and I thought that would be oh, around twenty two eighty five, eighty six. Yeah, so it should have been yeah about you know eight years. And I thought, well, you know, this novel came out in ninety four. Maybe they didn't have the timeline all worked out. But then, if you read the letters or the journal entries that Amanda does, she has it as twenty two ninety three of the current events, and it's referred to as twenty two eighty five when mm-hmm. Spock died. Yeah, so, so it is like eight years. That I didn't notice. It is that. eight years, but. The author kept mentioning three. So in my head canon, every time three years was mentioned by the characters, they were on Cronus. And I thought, oh, well, it's three, three Klingon. Klingon years. Ooh, <laughs> maybe. They're just, you know, being thoughtful and converting to the local yep. time, I guess. Yeah, sure. We'll go with that. Absolutely. Well, a big part of this story, obviously, the title of the book is Sarek. And Sarek plays a very big role in this book. But something that I was really um, excited about when I started this book is Amanda is also a huge part of this book, which makes sense. And specifically the bond between Sarek and Amanda as husband and wife, I think, was explored really well in this book. Um, And something that occurred to me was this this kind of telepathic bond that they have. I know it's something that's existed in Star Trek before, but... A lot of it really reminded me of T'Pol and Trip in Enterprise. And I'm, I wonder, because especially during the fourth season, I know some prolific Star Trek writers actually got writing credits on the Enterprise series. So there was kind of a melding of those two worlds a little bit. And I'm wondering if maybe uh, the writers on Enterprise got some inspiration from this book for that relationship. I think it's it's very possible. I hadn't actually thought about it before you, you brought it up, but... But that would make sense for that kind of long-range um, telepathic bond that they seem to have. I mean, is that something that in some of the other books you see that represented as something that can be across such a long range? I don't recall. Um, yeah. And there I may be. Yeah. But I, I was the same. I thought about Enterprise. I was like, oh my gosh, it's like to pull and trip. And I, I'm with you, Dan. I think they probably got the idea from this book. I mean, I don't know how mm-hmm. much they mined the books when they were doing Enterprise. And like you said, some you know, other authors were involved. But um, it seems very much a coincidence how you know, the two very much parallel each other. Mm-hmm. And I mean, you know, in the pantheon of, of Star Trek novels, this is a big one. Like this is one that a lot of people have read. It's kind of one of the bigger, more well-known novels, I think, in in the Star Trek literary universe. Would you guys kind of agree with that, I think? Oh, yeah. I mean, I think one of the reasons why I picked it up a couple months ago is because I had heard so much about it that I wanted to to check it out. And I've always loved Sarek as a character, so that was a draw, too. So, yeah, I think you hear about it a lot. Mm -hmm. 
And yeah, the that bond between Sarek and Amanda, I really loved that. I, I think it was, uh, you know, Sarek is so often shown as a very cold character. I mean, he's Vulcan, of course. It's it's part of their nature to be unemotional. But, you know, even as early as Journey to Babel, there were those little hints that there was this very special bond between him and Amanda. And I mean, why would he marry a human woman if there was no, you know, nothing there? And, you know, even bringing in the JJ universe when Sarek admits to Spock that the reason he married Amanda was because he loved her, you know. He may say to uh, publicly that it seemed logical at the time, but <laughs> the real reason is there's definite emotion there. And I love those little hints that we get of, get of that throughout the book. Yeah, when I became a Star Trek fan, I somewhat had an issue thinking, why would Sarek marry a human woman? How could he fall in love? They don't really have emotions. But over time, as I've gotten familiar with these characters and and have read the books and seen all the shows and gotten to know Sarek better, it starts to make sense. And this book really fleshes that out. Uh, we learned that Sarek was previously married to a Vulcan and that didn't work out. And then he meets Amanda. And as we all know, Vulcans really do have emotions. And there's almost like this way that they just, they kind of let love kind of surface a little, but not let it get too crazy. But I also found it fascinating, fascinating, that they would marry so quickly. They fell in love so quick and got married really quick, too. Which, to me, I just wouldn't think a Vulcan would do that. But it seemed to work with them. And in the journal entries that Amanda writes about her feelings and how, you know, because what we see in this book is, is Sarah, you know, is reading journal entries that Amanda has made. And then we see what happened at that event through his perspective. So we're getting her perspective first and then his second. And it really melds well together. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I love the way that they would do that, have something that's on the page and then go into Sarek's recollection of it. And what's really striking is all of these private moments that you see. I mean, by its nature, a, a journal can is something that's that's more private. But you're also getting more into Sarek's thoughts and into these recollections of these private moments, and you're seeing all of these frictions and tensions that happen over the course of their whole relationship over, you know, 60 plus years. And it's really something, all of the insights that you get and all of the extra information you get around things that you see on screen. And that's what I like too. It's like you were seeing this private world that you don't normally have access to. And actually, as I was, after I reread the book, I went back and you know, kind of rewatched all the places where you see Mark Leonard as as Sarek. And, you know, it's it's not a lot in the in the whole, you know, canon of Star Trek, all of the episodes and, and movies. I mean, I probably was able to watch it in, you know, a couple hours or something like that. I mean, it's so there's not so much that you see. So seeing it fleshed out in this book was really great. I mean, I felt like you, you know, his character and Amanda so much better and it adds all of these you know shades to to spock's character as well it was it was really great for that and even uh some of the little things like the one that really struck me and and you know i'm not giving too much away about this actual story here it's it's kind of in a flashback bit we learned that amanda was the impetus for Sarek to go to kirk after spock had died and you know see if spock had left his katra with him and that that scene, it was it was just so great with Amanda 
bursting in and saying, you, you have to see, you have to, you have to try Sarek, you know, if, if there, Spock would have found a way. And then just that line is echoed by Kirk in Star Trek three. And it was just the, the author captured those moments so well, and it makes perfect sense that, you know, that would be the reason that Sarek would go to Kirk because, you know, it seems like kind of an emotional plea and, you know, that his human wife with this, this totally human heart that she has would be the impetus for that it was really cool. Yeah. I, I, I love that, that, you know, specifically the example that, that you gave. I also like, uh, the, the weaving in of stuff that we didn't know canon wise, like later on. So Star Trek five, we learn that Sarek was married to a Vulcan princess, which is a weird term in and of itself. And we learn the reason for that in this book. They kind of retcon that a little bit. Um, and, you know, being able to weave in previously unknown characters in the canon that were a part of Sarek's life is definitely something that that we might see more of in the near, in the near future. So, you know, it's it's kind of, People complain about things like that, but that template is there. I mean, you know, retconning things in a in a long standing continuity is is kind of a tradition. So, you know, I think the author really made it work here. And and for all of these journal entries, I mean, because they take place in you know different different periods of time, it'll flip you know seven or ten years or or more. And I was like, in that journal. There are entries about Michael Burnham. <laughs> I was thinking that as I, as I read it. There is space in there for that because they're only talking about this certain slice of the story, right? Well, I'm glad exactly. you brought that up because, of course, the novel was written, what, 20 plus years ago before uh, Discovery. And I thought, would this novel hold up after Discovery comes on and we know more, more about Michael Burnham and her relationship with Sarek? And... I think it would. And I say that because this book isn't the history. The, this isn't the biography of, of Sarek. This mm -hmm. is certain touch points in his life and more so his relationship with Amanda, thus his relationship with his son, Spock. But it touches more on the current relationship of Sarek and Spock and not as much about their history. I mean, we get some history of, you know, when he was growing up a little bit. But I, I, what I'm getting at is it doesn't cover every relationship that Sarek has had with someone in his life. The focus mm -hmm. is on the three. It's Spock, Amanda, and Sarek. And it's really happening in this period of time after the undiscovered country. And I don't think... I don't think Michael Burnham would be someone who would be missed from this novel if somebody was reading this years from now after Discovery's been on the air for however long. Right. And I mean, you can you can kind of squint and make it work, too, where, you know, well, she was probably there in some parts, you know, just she wasn't relevant to this story right. that they wanted to tell. So, And who knows? He could, they could have had other kids that they've helped foster or grow up that we don't even still know about. <laughs> By the time Star Trek's 100 years old, maybe they'll have 20 human children that they've warded over the years. Well, and I mean, I was also thinking there's there's a little small reference to Cybok in here. And I'm like, that reference would never have been there without Star Trek V, right? I mean, it was something that, exactly. that was just kind of added into the picture. Like, oh, yeah, that's that's always been there. And I mean, you could do... Uh, you know, a novel or, you know, a discovery novel that includes things, 
with Sarek and Michael Burnham and all that. I think it would work because, you know, there, there are all of these gaps, like seven years, 10 years, 20 years here and there. And there's a lot of stuff that's, that's happening in their lives, but they're just focusing on and thinking about things really related to Amanda and Spock. So it, it makes sense. So I was thinking about that also like, okay, is this still going to fit? And I think it will. I think it really will. Well, there's another character that is included in this book. He's someone that we've seen a little bit of in Star Trek four and Star Trek six specifically. And he gets a name in this novel. I, I don't, I don't know if he's named elsewhere in the movies. He's just called the Klingon ambassador and we get Camarag. Uh, so he's this Klingon ambassador who famously in Star Trek four addressed the Federation council and said, there shall be no peace as long as Kirk lives. And, uh, so what did you guys think about his character in this book without getting into too many spoilers yet, but his kind of fleshing out in this story? Well, I, I have to, to admit that, um, you know, as I was reading the story and even, even rereading it, I think because he didn't get a name in those, um, those movies, I didn't even make the connection. And then you mentioned on the outline and I was like, oh yeah, <laughs> that guy. But, <laughs> but his character was, was very interesting because it was like this ambassador that is so kind of belligerent and ready to, to make war and to, to really stir things up. So I thought that was, um, that was very interesting. And of course, if you tie it back to, what he says in Star Trek four, then it's kind of trying to make good on his promise. Right. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it is. And I'm with you, Justin. I, I eventually picked up on who it was, but I guess in the first few chapters or whatever, I didn't make the connection until later. And then I realized, Oh wait, we're talking about that guy from, yeah, from, from, you know, uh, four and six. But I also didn't feel like he felt like that character. Like, I mean, I know Mm -hmm. that, that he was in the movies very the, the Klingon ambassador is very much like yo I want the head of Kirk but he didn't seem like a warrior type and this one he felt more like the traditional Klingon warrior with honor type you know at least that's how I was picturing him when I was first reading the book so I kept having to adjust my thoughts to the, what we saw of the character in the movies and I thought well he you know I don't know. I, I just didn't feel like, even though we didn't get a lot of him in the movies, he just didn't feel like he would be the same character. So it felt a bit mm-hmm. of a stretch to me. But c- considering the circumstances of the book and, you know, the con- the control he was under, then, yeah, it, it could work. But it felt a little off to me. Yeah, I felt kind of the same way you did, Bruce. And and like you say, the book kind of offers some explanation that you can use to to make that make sense. But yeah, I had the same feeling that, you know, when he was calling for, um, you know, I think in Star Trek four, he says, we, we demand the extradition of Kirk. We demand justice. You know, he, he's speaking for the Klingon empire. He's not, I didn't get the impression that he personally loathed Kirk, but I mean, I, I guess it's possible. And of course that gets stirred up in this, um, the, the funny thing that I noticed was the little ways that the author, lets you know who this character is. There's just a few little lines that echo his lines in Star Trek four. And my favorite was at some point, some character in this book refers to him as a pompous ass. And it's the, and I always remember this because it's the weirdest line in Star Trek four. When, um, Sarek 
faces him down in front of the Federation Council and he storms out. There's just like one guy on the Federation Council yells out, you pompous ass. <laughs> it's just, I love that line. Yeah. It's so It almost feels like an outtake that they kept in, right? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> it, but it's so front and center. Like it's so obviously meant to be heard loud. It just <laughs> seems really weird. Mm. And I love that AC Crispin, um, used the line pompous ass in this book to refer to him i'm like okay yeah it's definitely that guy (laughs) (laughs) awesome well the other thing i kind of wanted to talk about before we get into the the really spoilery bits was uh we we have a kind of fringe what starts out as a fringe group on earth in the 20th century kind of hard to imagine but they have the keihl the keep earth human league and it's kind of this uh, I would say right-wing group, keep Earth human, you know, expel uh, foreigners, expel Vulcans specifically. And, you know, this is something that's that's been explored in Star Trek a few times since. I mean, we have Terra Prime and Enterprise, John Fred- Frederick Paxton's group, kind of similar. Uh, and, you know, I would even go so far to say as the neo-fascists that you hear about in the news today, you know, these groups that that are, you know, in this case, it's it's keep Earth human, and in other cases, it's keep, you know, America or keep Alberta or Canada white kind of thing. Uh, and it's it's funny to me, funny in quotes, that these groups continue to be relevant and these stories continue to be relevant as the years go by. What did you guys think of the Keep Earth Human League and their role in this story? Well, I definitely, one of the first things I thought of was, was Terra Prime because it does have a lot of, feels like it has a lot of, of similarities to, to that group that you see in Enterprise. And then during the book, it says that the roots of this Keep Earth Human League go all the way back to First Contact in 2063. So for me, in my headcanon, I was like, there was some resistance and a certain movement. Um, and then that kind of developed toward Terra Prime in the 22nd century. And then it became this Keep Earth Human League in the 23rd century. But you know, when I, when I think about it, I think, you know, okay, it's the 23rd century. People would have had exposure to species from other worlds for, you know, hundreds of years now, I guess by this point, 330 years, like there's really still going to be that kind of resistance. So that felt a little bit odd, but I mean, within the book, I think they do give some, some explanation Mm -hmm. for why it becomes so important, but yeah, it, it was something that was striking and it is striking that those things seem relevant and it makes you wonder you know if we do make first contact with an alien species there would probably be you know some group of people that would be like why are these people on our world they need to get out you know so um it'll have some relevance in the future you know if and when that happens too it's very very interesting it's been an odd few years uh for me in star trek and what's going on in the world Uh, the thing that's really come to to what I recognize now is as I think things have changed for certain areas and have gotten better, I think it just gets quiet and then it gets loud again. And then you find out maybe things haven't gotten better on that one issue or that one topic. And it just keeps rearing its ugly head. And I've always thought of Star Trek as being this utopia, like, Oh, we'll get over those kind of things by the 22nd and 23rd and the 24th centuries and so on and so forth. And 
but yet then you read a book like this and it's in the 23rd century and, and here's people who are against aliens. I mean, one of the leaders of this group is African-American. And you would think mm-hmm. that, you know, he comes, you know, from a history and a family background that, you know, where other people were treating them as not equals and wanted them out. And now he's doing that with alien species on earth. And it's like, how can this be going on in the 23rd century? Haven't you people learned anything from your own history? And now you're turning around and doing it to these other aliens. And what about this utopia society that we have on earth, apparently in star Trek and, and everyone talks about, Oh, I love star Trek because of the message and, and how things will be in the future and it'll be a better place, but it keeps rearing its ugly head. So at first when I'm reading this, I'm like, no, there wouldn't be a group like this in this time frame, and then I thought, well, no, we keep seeing this stuff continue to happen, and maybe it'll get less and less over time, but at first I had a problem with it, but now I totally accept mm-hmm. it, and it's sad to think that, you know, I mean, I know this is fiction, but that you could have this, you know, a group out there that is against other races and, and don't want, doesn't want them intermingled. Yeah, we had that in Enterprise, but now we're a hundred years future, and, and we still have it. So, mm. I mean, it, it yeah, it's just, and it, it plays so well with what's going on today. And I thought, man, this, this book reads as if it just came out, like it was written this year. Yeah, like if this had come out this year, you'd, you'd have a bunch of people saying, oh, it's being so totally reactionary to what's going on right now. And yeah, written written in 1994. I mean, and yeah, and the original it series keeps happening. <laughs> there's there's episodes from the 60s where it's like, oh yeah, well back in the 60s, blah blah blah. That's why that episodes. And then you have comments when you talk to people, and they say, you know that that episode's still relevant today. It's kind of sad, but those issues are still going on. Yeah, you know mm-hmm. the the well the way that I see it is that the future in Star Trek is better, but it's not perfect. And it's right. unrealistic to think that it would be perfect because, mm-hmm. you know, as as people, as as human beings, we've had, you know, all of these hundreds of thousands of years, millions of years of, of evolution. And within a lot of that, there's been a certain advantage to being skeptical of, of what's different or, you know, people that are out there in a different tribe or something like that. And I think that those kinds of of things where you've kind of been trained on on this evolutionary scale to be you know skeptical of of what's different or to to you know even be opposed to it because you think it might be threatening would still be there so i feel like things would be better but it's it's not going to be perfect and if everything was perfect all the time and there was you know no conflict at all there wouldn't really be a story to tell there has to be conflict from somewhere and it has to be internal or external and you and oftentimes within star trek it's external the federation against some some other um you know planet or, or civilization although in the original series you maybe see a little bit more internal but i think that that kind of thing would be there and it would be a constant struggle to get better and get toward the perfection that you can never actually reach you know so, but isn't that what Gene Roddenberry is trying to do with the next generation? He did. It was hard for the writers to write conflict because everyone in the Federation or the Starfleet or the crew all get along and everybody's accepting and whatever. So, Justin, I'm going to ask you: Would if AC Crispin handed this as a script to Gene Roddenberry, do you think he would accept this concept of the story? Oh, you mean with like the Keep Birth Human League? Yes. I, I would say during the next generation era, no, he would he would reject it because he wouldn't see that 
those kinds of things would happen internally and that the conflict would have to come from some external foe. Uh, no, so yeah, I think he would definitely have rejected it in in that era. Yeah, but I think that that's Excellent. kind of unrealistic because you know in the next generation era, the Federation has expanded to the point where we're told at one point there's 150 member worlds. It's across 8,000 light years. It's it's huge, and there's got to be you know some variation or some some conflict there somewhere we're just not seeing it week to week in the next generation era that's that's the way i think about it right and in this book mm-hmm. we had this is also in the era where we had the undiscovered country where there's prejudice from our own enterprise crew with klingons and they had to overcome that and i heard gene didn't like that part of the script he didn't have he couldn't override it. He didn't have any creative control over that movie, but I know he didn't like it. So I, I think you're right. In as much as we want everything to be perfect in the future and in Star Trek, I think it's important that we show that it, it's not always perfect. We're only human. Yeah, it, it, mm-hmm. it is Im- important. And, you know, when I tell people why I like Star Trek, one of the reasons I give is because it's a better future. I never say it's because it's a perfect future because it it can't be it it can't be perfect and i mean truthfully like if if everything was perfect and there was no conflict anywhere then i don't know if life would be that interesting to live in some way because through some of that i mean of course we don't want conflict to happen where you know people are are dying or there're terrible wars or things like that but where there's conflict between ideas and and ways that people are interested in having society progress is very interesting. And that's the way that you get to something better sometimes, I think. That said, sometimes after some of the messages I see online, I wouldn't mind giving that world a try still. <laughs> sure. But yeah, no, I, I totally see what you're saying here for sure. And I guess in a world where you have freedom of thought, you know, people are going to have thoughts that that differ from you know, what you would consider to be right or good because someone else's idea of what's right or good is going to be different. Uh, And, you know, unfortunately that pendulum does swing, I think. And, you know, I, what's interesting. And, and I think at this point I'm going to say, we're going to get into spoilers because there's, you know, to really discuss what's going on with this group. uh, We kind of got to get into spoiler territory here. So from this point forward, if you haven't read the book, uh, and you don't want to be spoiled, you might want to click us off and 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 go read that and come back. But so the Keep Earth Human League is kind of being prodded telepathically at very by you know various leaders and and parts of the group are being influenced to you know um, their xenophobic tendencies are being amplified and that sort of thing. And uh, so that's that's really playing a big part in this. It's it's amplifying that it's making it more, um, you know, to the surface rather than, you know, what goes underneath. But what's interesting to me is when the crisis is over and everything's passed and that's negated, it doesn't say that the, the group goes away. You know, it just returns to the fringes. So, you know, it's 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 on one hand sad to me that there will always be those fringe groups, but at the same time you know like i said with freedom of thought you you're gonna get those things so it's almost like they play them off as like they're a nice racist group (laughs) they're safe (laughs) yeah they're yeah 
Yeah, I mean, as as weird as that sounds, that that kind of makes and, sense. And it's interesting that they think of it in terms of how many people are espousing these thoughts or how how big it is, because oftentimes these things can be very destructive, even if it's just believed in by a small group of people that are taking certain actions. So I thought that mm-hmm. was an interesting choice to say, oh, it's going back to its previous small fringe numbers, but that can be very dangerous as well, you know, if if they're willing to you know, commit violence and to do certain things to, um, to overturn what's, what, you know, the majority of people have agreed should happen in in society. So yeah, it, it, it's kind of interesting. And I don't think in the next generation era, we quite see something like this group, right? As far as I can think of, but yeah, nothing that I can really, yeah, I can't, there may be, but I can't think of anyone. We should call yeah. Amy Nelson. <laughs> hey, hey, I'm on Earl Grey. I've seen all of, of Next Generation <laughs> and everything in the Next Gen era. I just can't think of anything, but maybe there is or there's some book out there. But but yeah, yeah. it seems like it's saying like, oh, this is just going to kind of fade away so you don't have to think about it. Um, <laughs> yeah, but one of the things mm-hmm. that I actually thought about that was maybe an interesting parallel is when I was reading this book, I thought back to one of my favorite books, uh, Spock's World, where Vulcans are trying to secede from the Federation because in some ways they think that, you know, they've outlived the usefulness of the Federation. So it's kind of like a, a, a keep Vulcan Vulcan league or something like that. Um, <laughs> so like in some of the other books like that one, I think you do see like a variation on this theme, but it's and in that book, it's from a very different perspective, but it's the same kind of sentiment. Like we don't need these outsiders and, and these other people and i mean that's a really excellent novel but it kind of surprised me at first like whoa 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 what is going on here you know that these founding members of the federation are interested in in leaving but um but yeah it was interesting to see that play out like on earth and in this book so talking about the keep earth human league uh we get to peter kirk so Peter uh, Kirk's nephew from we we see him briefly in the episode Operation Annihilate as a child. Uh, he's now a cadet at Starfleet Academy, and he's studying to take his Kobayashi Maru test. You know he's he's raring to get out there on starships. You know typical driven cadet, and he kind of encounters this Kirk, this Keep Earth Human League. Uh, when they're demonstrating outside the Vulcan consulate and he's going there to hopefully meet Ambassador Sarek, one of his personal heroes. And uh, he kind of gets caught up in this group, ends up um, fleeing with them when when they go to get arrested kind of thing because he's, you know, he's kind of in the middle of it and doesn't want to be arrested as a member of this group. So, and, and figures he's going to infiltrate them and, um, you know, basically... He gets, so long story short, he figures he's going to inf- uh, infiltrate them, gather some information, reports it to Starfleet. And of course, because a number of people throughout Starfleet and various areas are under telepathic, I guess, control or influence, uh, he's found out and then captured by the Klingons, the previously mentioned Camarag, and he's being held uh, hostage basically to lure Kirk because Camarag has this huge vendetta against Kirk. But while he's held hostage, he encounters um, Camarag's niece, Valdir, and they kind of strike up a very interesting relationship between the two of them. 
And I thought we might talk a little bit about this part of the novel because it's a very interesting part of this novel. And uh, in, in a lot of ways, one of the most interesting parts to me to read. So what are you guys' thoughts on on this aspect of the story? Yeah, I, I, I liked uh, this aspect, the Peter Kirk Valdir relationship. And it struck me as something that was almost like a a commentary on what's possible in in this world after the the Kittimer conference that you see in in Star Trek VI because um, I mean also for for Valdir the the Klingon woman her father was was Krug um, and feels that you know Kirk was responsible for her father's death and then for for uh, for you know Peter Kirk um, you know his his cousin David was killed, you know, by the Klingons headed by, by Krug, but they kind of in the course of the novel kind of move beyond that and actually kind of strike up a a love relationship, which is very interesting. It feels like there's, you know, this, this newer generation that is willing to get past some of those older animosities and, 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 you know, see what the, the possibilities of, of things are. So I found that really interesting to see it, see it develop and some of the hostility on both sides kind of break down and to understand each other kind of over time. Yeah, their their relationship is definitely, uh, for me, a highlight of this book, which was a surprise to me because uh, at first I was kind of like, well, let's get back to Sarek and what's going on there. But this part of the story really started to uh, become a centerpiece for me. Uh, I just want to make one quick little Thing. Her father wasn't actually Krug. Her father was uh, a member of Krug's crew uh, who was described as very honorable and, and that sort of thing. So Okay, I read the to... wrong information on memory beta, I guess. Oh, memory beta. You... Oh, <laughs> man. Well, and you know, I, w- I was reading through it and I was like, okay, you know, I know her uncle. Her uncle is, is Camarag, right? The ambassador. Yeah, that's right. But then... Uh, yeah, I caught a reference in there about um, about Krug's crew, but then I was looking up some information. I was like, "Oh, really? Okay." <laughs> but but anyway, still, you know, <laughs> got to watch those guys. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. But anyway, still, you know, somebody whose father was was killed in that whole incident with with Kirk that you see in Star and Krug that you see in Star Trek Three, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah, no, for sure. And it's, I, I love that they weave that history into it too, which is, you know, really interesting, especially since we've gotten the, the Prey trilogy a few months ago too. That was kind of all ringing in my head as we were reading this and, you know, Krug's family line and stuff. So it was really interesting. Yeah, I was thinking and, that too. Yeah. And and Valdir, I thought, just as a character in and of herself was really, really fascinating to me. She was I don't know, somebody that was really cool to read about. And I kept wanting to, I don't know, she, she's a really good in to Klingon culture, I think, in this book, which is something that we didn't get a lot of in the TOS era and that sort of thing. So it, it was really cool to have that explored as well. Yeah. And, uh, you know, it. I, I really love the relationship between the two. And I, I think it's it's a great analogy to you know what's happening with humans and Klingons at this time. I will say though, when the romantic interest started to happen, where Peter was looking at her and and 
really finding her attractive. The thing about it is I was really picturing her as kind of a hideous looking Klingon woman. And then he starts talking about how beautiful she is. I was like, oh, I need to adjust what I'm picturing in my head here. But uh, and then they, you know, they they, you know, Peter keeps up with her. You know, they they get it on and it it gets a little rough. And, and he they. Yeah. Mm hmm good for him <laughs> what's kind of funny we were talking a little bit on the other side of the page the whole way that peter kirk gets in with the keep earth human league is this you know kind of second lieutenant i guess in the in that league is you know an attractive woman of course and we keep hearing kirk uh, peter kirk's inner monologue saying like well i'm no jim kirk like i'm not my uncle but you know maybe i can turn on the charm a little bit and you know, he, he woos this woman in the Keep Earth Human League and then he and Valdir fall in love. I don't know. I think it's just a genetic thing with the Kirks. You know, he's he's modest. He doesn't think he's got this. But, man, he's he's really pulling a lot of Jim Kirks here. I think so. Yeah, he doesn't think he's a Kirk. But in the course <laughs> of the book, he really is. I mean, except for what he decides to do at the end. But pretty much. Well, yeah. <laughs> we're in spoiler territory now, right? Yeah. So, yeah. okay. Do you know in, what? Deep in it. Okay, he's not as good with the women as his uncle is. But, you know, he's he's got that Kirk side of him. But I will say this. Besides that, the whole Kobayashi Maru, he's the second Kirk to accomplish the Kobayashi Maru just does not work for me. It doesn't because for me it totally worked. I was like, oh, this is pretty brilliant what he's doing, taking all the things that he learned on all the on the mission and I, I Oh actually no, loved I thought it. that was brilliant. Yeah. No, I I do. I really enjoyed that chapter. I just don't like the fact that, oh, well, you know, because I like to think that James Kirk is the only one to conquer this training situation <laughs> here of the Kobayashi Maru. Oh now his nephew can do it too. That's what that I just didn't like <laughs> But it was well, a I good chapter. He, he even does it better than Kirk because yeah. he yes. doesn't need to reprogram the computers. Exactly. He doesn't need to. He just needs he to sacrifice himself. That's all. <laughs> yep. yep. Yeah. It, it was. It was. Yeah. It was pretty brilliant. He didn't have to cheat. He just kind of found this loophole in there, and they're like, "Whoa, whoa, 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 whoa! Hey, what are you doing?" <laughs> I love how they just stop the program. And they're like, uh, "How?" And they just walk him through it. It was. It was awesome. I like that. But. But you're right. It does take down Jim Kirk's accomplishment a peg. <laughs> I could almost see, you know, the next generation of, of Kirk kind of going forward. And I mean, he does end up taking a career path different from Jim Kirk. But at the same time, I could see like, you know, this Kirk making a name for himself in the next, you know, few decades kind of thing. So, you know, that that Kirk name continues on forward. I don't know. I think I think the family line's in good hands here. I think so. And and that makes me curious because, you know, again, there are a lot of novels I haven't I haven't read. I mean, is there anything else about this Peter Kirk character going or the kind of Kirk lineage going forward or not so much? I don't recall. Do you, Dan? I was just wondering that myself. Yeah. Not that I know of, but at the same time, there are tons of novels I haven't read either. So, uh, hey, listeners in the Babel Conference, if you know of any future Kirk progeny that we need to be uh, made aware of let us know for sure so the other big aspect of this story of course you know the novel being Sarek is you know Sarek and his relationship with Amanda and in this novel we learn that she is terminally ill she's quite old and uh, she's dying 
and Sarek ends up having to leave her close when she's, you know, going, going to be dying fairly soon, they, they assume, to uh, pursue his diplomatic duties because the Federation, the president calls upon him to uh, mediate this uh, dispute where basically Klingon raiding parties have been crossing the border and capturing planets and one in particular he has to go and try to free. So this, you know, causes a rift between him and Spock. And I was curious, I, I've, I see here in the notes, how would you define Sarek and Spock's relationship post the Undiscovered Country and then, in this case, after Amanda's death? Because, of course, while he is away, she does pass away. And Spock is, in his Vulcan way, furious with Sarek over this. Uh, do you think Spock's too emotional and less understanding of Sarek's logic or... You know, which which side do you kind of fall on here in this dispute? Well, you know, when I think about Spock in this book and his reaction to his mother's death, he's not overly emotional on the surface, but mm -hmm. it's indicated that he's really he really is suffering, which made me think of, um, you know, him dealing in the Kelvin timeline, the destruction of Vulcan and then the loss of his mother and his emotional outbursts were really more on the surface in the Kelvin timeline because there was just so much devastation that he's dealing with. And this one, it's not nearly as bad. She, it wasn't like an instant death. It was unexpected. He knows that she's dying, but still it, it's touches on the idea that Vulcans do have emotions and he's struggling with it. Sarek himself doesn't seem to struggle as much. He is fine with, the idea that, oh, I'm, I'm needed elsewhere, Amanda, um, the needs of the many, and I'm trying to help uh, this other planet. I have a diplomatic mission I need to take care of. And even though others could maybe fill in that space and do it instead of him, well, he was the one called to it and he would probably be the best at it. And it's the logical thing to do. And Spock recognizes that, in his opinion, I, I don't care if it's logical. Your wife needs you. She's dying. She needs it's it's you that's going to help her get through this. And she's going to die sooner if you're not here. And I guess the thought for me is that it just shows that Spock is maybe more in touch with his emotions and realizes that it's not always logic. And he has a better balance than I think Sarek does. But I think Sarek comes to realize that, but they're, but Spock really does show anger towards his father. Again, not like shouting anger, but he's really angry at his father. And I thought, oh my gosh, now we're going back to how things used to be. There's always seems to be a rift. Like they always just seem to be on the edge. Like they're getting along and then just one little thing and then they kind of break apart. And then they'll eventually maybe come back together. So, I mean, I like the whole aspect of the relationship between the two. It wasn't like they're not speaking to each other again, you know, they're mad or they have a disagreement, but then they come back together in the end. Hmm. Yeah. And I think it's pretty striking. There was actually, you know, some parts in it where I'm like, wow, the way that, that Spock is speaking to, to Sarek is, is pretty amazing how, how angry he is. I mean, there was one part in, in particular I wanted to, to read where, um, you know, Sarek is, is about to, to leave. He's explained it to Amanda who 
you know, interestingly seems fine with it and to, and to understand. And Spock, you know, sees that, that Sarek's going to, to leave. And he says, you actually intend to leave her in her present condition? I must. The needs of the many outweigh the needs. To quote an appropriate human phrase, to hell with that. You cannot leave her like this. Mm -hmm. I recall a time when you chose to remain at your post, when only you could save my life. Yes, but I have grown since then. It is a pity you have not. I'm like, wow, that is, he's incredibly angry and expressing it in his own way to an extent that I haven't, I don't know if I've really seen before, you know, in, in the prime timeline. You know, I think there's something mm. uh, for Spock about his mother that, that touches a certain point that almost nothing else seems to, you know, that, that really makes him very, very angry. And it, you know, in, in some ways it, it just seems like, would he really react like that? But it seems like it's this special case, like, like his, his mother is this really kind of special part of him. And he feels like she's not getting the respect that she deserves and what she needs as her life is, is ending. And he's very angry with, with Sarah. It, it worked for me. And I thought it was actually pretty powerful how it was, it was written that he's expressing it this way. And I mean, Leonard Nimoy's Spock, especially at that point, could do that really cold fury really well. And we've only seen it like in very short little bursts. And the way I pictured his face in this scene, but, you know, through the whole scene was, do you remember in, in Star Trek six when Valeris has the phaser and, mm. you know, he says, you have to shoot. If you are logical, you must. And, you know, she doesn't. And he just smashes the mm. phaser out of his hand and just for like half a second his face is like that and i like ooh, it's just for like a half second but here it's very much on the surface and and yeah that scene was was chilling like i think leonard nimoy's spock could be like that that's a vulcan mic drop yeah <laughs> it's like it a serious yeah. vulcan burn <laughs> like mm -hmm. wow and i mean it, it's obvious his mother and and it's pointed out is his weakness here and and I, and i think amanda herself in her journals talks about her being spock's emotional weakness and that sort of thing and it uh it yeah that what it brings out between the two of these men and and i think also Sarek, you know on the surface is very unemotional but we get glimpses in into his psyche and he is you know, going through as much of an emotional strain as a Vulcan who, you know, follows Surak can, uh, inside, you know, and, and there, there's a lot of depth to Sarek here and a lot more than I would have expected having watched him on television, even in those quiet little emotional moments we might've seen over the years. I never really expected this kind of depth of, uh, feeling out of him. And, Sarek would be the first one to, you know, upbraid me for even suggesting such a thing, but it's definitely there. And, uh, you know, it's, 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 I think really a really fundamental, interesting part of his character in this book. Oh, you're talking about for, for Sarek and what we see from him. Yeah. And his, his love for his wife and his, uh, emotional turmoil at not being able to be there. And by emotional turmoil, I, it's all relative, obviously. Like he's very calm, very collected outside, but inside you can tell he's for a Vulcan, very, um, off center and very 
upset by it and upset in quote marks yeah <laughs> like, as upset as he can be <laughs> as upset as he can be at, at that point i guess because you know in in seeing some of what Sarah goes through in this and those like little touches of emotion that you may not see elsewhere i mean i i couldn't help but think of of the episodes where Sarek appears in the next generation where he's really losing mm. his control. That emotion is, is getting out. So, um, it almost felt like you're, you're seeing the, the little bits that kind of surface from, from time to time, but that when a Vulcan loses control can just become something so much, so much greater. And it, you know, I think in, in those those next generation episodes you get to see maybe some more more depth or more about like Sarek's character and who he is than you may have seen in some of the other glimpses but in this book it's like 10 times as much but in subtle ways that kind of surface at different parts through this this novel and i and i like that, that they were just kind of using little bits here and there and the journal entries and and the thoughts in the midst of all this action and the other things that are going on with the Klingons and 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 all of that it felt like it was it was almost like the author was just painting little bits you know at a time every every you know five or ten pages or 20 pages or something like that that when you thought about it as a whole painted this really interesting picture of Sarek that you hadn't seen before well, and I think it's important to also mention Amanda and Justin, you said earlier about how she was more accepting about Sarek leaving than Spock was to when he was going on that mission. And that says a lot about Amanda because she's a human and she gave up everything on Earth, moved to Vulcan, like just cold. She, I don't even think she'd ever been to Vulcan until she was marrying Sarek. And she was even she learns later how well she was accepted into the society and that it is her home to the point that when Sarek is leaving her as she's dying on death's bed and he says, I must do this. I have something I need to go do. It's only logical. And she accepts that. Yes, you're correct. That's the Vulcan thing to do. Go ahead. I'm okay with it. And Spock, who's the half Vulcan, has the issue with it. It's not Amanda that does. So in a lot of ways, Amanda is handling logic in this situation better than the Vulcan Spock is. And I think there's an interesting difference between the two of them, though, because for the most part, Amanda has been on Vulcan for more than 60 years. And Spock, for the most part, in the previous, what, 40 years or so, has gone off to Starfleet, has served on ships, has come back to Vulcan from time to time, but hasn't been, like, Amanda has been on Vulcan, I think, for the most part, surrounded by by Vulcans in her everyday life, and Spock has been away from Vulcan for the most part, surrounded by non-Vulcans, so it, it almost feels like there's that different influence on the two of them, even though, you know, the the makeup of, of their genetics is is different. Yeah, that's interesting. I hadn't really thought of that angle, but, you know, Amanda, yeah, like you said, surrounded by Vulcans and, and Spock, who's trying to be a Vulcan, is is definitely under the influence of, of humanity and, and other races and that sort of thing. That's that's a really good point. I hadn't thought but of that. But, you know, she probably has a better balance between Vulcan logic and human emotion more so than her son Spock, who is half Vulcan half human because even when Spock decides that he is going to Starfleet and Sarek doesn't like it and the way Sarek treats Spock, she leaves him. 
She mm. leaves Sarek and goes to Earth. I mean, she's a strong-willed woman. She knows what needs to be done, what's right and wrong. And even though she's angry at him, at the same time, I think she realizes the logical thing to do is to leave him at this moment and go join Spock on Earth and see him go through the Academy. I'm really glad the author made that choice too, because I, I thought that was a very defining moment for Amanda. And this is all kind of revealed through those journal entries in, in flashback basically. But, uh, yeah, it, it, it makes sense. You know, I, I don't know that I would respect the decision to stay after that had happened, at least in, in the immediate aftermath, because I think, what Sarek did to Spock was so <laughs> like, I don't want to say over the top, but it was, it was very egregious and, you know, basically calling him, um, banished from Vulcan and, 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 you know, not, not allowed to come back. And, you know, for, for a, a parent of a child or a, of a young, you know, adult child who you love, you know, I, I, I don't think I would have respected her really if she had decided to stay then in there. I don't know if that makes sense at all. But yeah, it it does. And I mean, I, I I really like that that part where you know you get the explanation for for why Sarek and Spock haven't talked for so many years. By the time you get to to journey to to Babel because of his decision to go to to Starfleet, seeing that whole confrontation is is really interesting. That Amanda you know leaves for for almost a, a year is really something. But it also adds something to to Sarek's character because you know when Sarek's I think it's Sarek's father uh, dies and you know Amanda is talking to to Pow I think about you know mm-hmm. how Sarek is is doing you know to to Pow says well you know he grieves for his father but he grieves a hundredfold for you and she's like really you know I mean that really says something about about Sarek that you know he is feeling like emotional and grieving for what at at the time seemed like, you know, the end of, of this, this great relationship of, of, you know, being together with, with Amanda. And I was like, wow, that just in, in saying that, that says so much about, um, you know, it's almost like if, if Spock is, I'm sorry, if, uh, for Spock, um, Amanda is like his weakness that can make him really emotional or angry. It's like for, for Sarek, Amanda is also almost like this emotional weakness that makes him feel more than he does for, for others or in other ways. It's very interesting. I'm really glad you brought up that scene. I love that scene with Tapao. that, uh, I actually just recently watched, rewatched, um, Amok Time. And so I, I had her right in my, in my head while I was reading that. And that was such a good scene for even, I mean, even though Sarek isn't in that scene, the emotional depth that it adds to Sarek's character is just great. I, I loved that scene. Mm-hmm. Yeah. But it's like, he wasn't in that scene, but his presence was definitely there hanging over, over exactly. all of it. And it told you so much about him just by what Tapao was saying about him more than if he had said it himself. I mean, the way that was put together, mm-hmm. I think was, was really brilliant having that little scene there. Well, we've kind of, we've spent most of this time talking about the character moments and the characters in this story. The main plot 
really is kind of almost a background to what's going on with, with the characters we know and love. So I'm going to kind of blow through this main plot really quickly here. There's a planet called Freelan, and Sarek's been negotiating with them for years, and it turns out that they're actually kind of under the aegis of the Romulan Empire, and there's this long-term plan to invade the Federation, basically. Uh, I'm simplifying it, but that's basically it. Uh, and the the Freelands, most of them are actually secretly kidnapped Vulcans over many years. And Sarek and Spock have to convince Terran, who is this uh, Freeland, in quotes, that Sarek has been negotiating with for all these years, um, to return these Vul- these captured Vulcans to back to Vulcan. And... Like I said, I'm really simplifying this plot, but by the end, a number of these Vulcans decide to remain underground on Freeland and continue to be a part of Romulan society. And by the end of the novel, we're left with this really interesting uh, hook that kind of connects it to unification in TNG when Spock meets Pardek, who, of course, is the, the Romulan senator in unification. And he and Pardek kind of speculate that... Uh, you know, Vulcans remaining in Romulan society might have some sort of effect and, you know, they've been able to be in Romulan society all this time. A door may be opened here to some sort of reunification in the future. Uh, did you guys think that was a little too on the nose or did you appreciate that kind of uh, connection, connective tissue here? I appreciated it because I mean, it's a little too on the nose, but I, I really liked it because we're seeing Vulcans who were already integrated into a Romulan society and may not, of course, been really aware of it, that they were Vulcan and, and they grew up as Romulan. And at the same time, they... They know who they are now. They have to integrate within the society. And it just is enough of a spark for Spock to say, well, if we have Vulcans and Romulans now living together, then there may be a chance that both races could live together as two different societies on two different planets and have a good relationship and, and have that bond again, which takes us all to the, the next generation episode of unification. But what I also liked about this is if Vulcans had, if they expressed emotions, Sarek is basically laughing in Spock's face because Spock presents <laughs> this idea to his father and Sarek's like, there's basically no way that Romans and Vulcans would ever get along. You, you, you're you fooling yourself. And to the point then Spock's like so serious about that, his father's like, okay, well, if you believe that, eh, maybe it could happen. It was just a very odd scene between the two of them. But again, it just shows, you know, Spock has hope where Sarek doesn't. And, you know, I, I, I don't know. I just kind of liked how that all got wrapped up. Yeah, I, I, I like the connection to, to unification, but you know what it made me think of also? So with these Freelands, the Romulans have set up these people on this planet, played this long game for like 70 years in order to hopefully have the outcome to, to take over the, the Federation or weaken them in some way, right? And then at the end of the book, there's this link to unification. Pardek comes by and he's like, hey, Spock, wanted to give you some news. And, you know, by the way... 
there might be some possibility of some unification or something somewhere in the future. And what I thought was like, okay, so are the Romulans again sowing the seeds for something that's supposed to, you know, go come to fruition 70 years hence in unification? Are they really like playing that long game again? That made me think about that if that's what they were doing. And if so, it's like, wow, these guys are really patient, <laughs> you know? <laughs> well, and I mean, that is basically what comes to pass in unification yeah. part it turns out that pardek all this like time 75 was... years <laughs> <laughs> and not only are they incredibly patient with their long plans these 70 year long plans are undone in a single day <laughs> yeah <laughs> oh yeah that's true <laughs> by captains of the enterprise right. like <laughs> they must hate Kirk and Picard because they just unravel their plans like nobody's business. Yeah, but you're right. I mean, there was indication in the book that that's what Romulans do. They're they're very patient. You know, they'll they'll take a long time to to get it to where they need to go. But yeah, that's funny that yeah. <laughs> oh, here comes an Enterprise captain. Ah, oh, screw it. Seventy years. Son of a. <laughs> in one yeah. day. I mean, you got to think after unification that they're like, okay, guys, we need to do a little study here. Should we do these 70-year plans anymore or should we do something a little more quickly? <laughs> oh, man. Yeah. I mean, I know no, I know they're long-lived people like the Vulcans, but that's a little ridiculous for sure. <laughs> Who knows? So this all brings us to basically the main reason we read this book was – you know, we've got Star Trek Discovery, which just recently aired, uh, and we've got the character of Sarek. So at the time of recording, <laughs> I was about to say we haven't seen the episodes. Mo most of us. <laughs> most of us haven't seen the episodes. Bruce, you lucky something something. Yeah, they're saying <laughs> that because I was at the premiere in Hollywood. Mm-hmm, <laughs> mm-hmm. Mm we're, we're glaring at him right now. <laughs> yes, but as this episode <laughs> drops, you've seen it already. Yes. My future self listening yes. to this has seen it and can now think the same things Bruce will. And not only have you seen it, but you love it. Yeah, I've seen it. I've <laughs> loved it. I've seen it like 16 times. Sure. <laughs> I'm sure the same is true for me as well. But on, on this side of the, the great divide of, of not having seen it yet, what do we think of how you know, Sarek is portrayed in this book. Do we think that that will be consistent through Star Trek Discovery? Does this book kind of inform a little bit of how you're going to see Sarek when you watch Discovery? And Bruce, I know you're probably going to have to be a little careful when you're answering this because you have in fact seen it. So uh, I don't know. What, do, what are you guys' thoughts on that? It's, it's an interesting question because, you know, I, we one of the reasons, of course, we're reading this now is because Sarek's going to have some importance, at least it seems in the first couple of episodes of, of Discovery. And I hadn't really thought forward after that, like, how is this going to affect how I might see uh, Sarek in, in Discovery? And I think it might. I mean, there might be moments where you might think back or see how something fits into the book. I don't know. I mean, it's, it's a little bit hard to, to say at this point, not having seen it yet, except that I probably will think about it. And some of the things that we learn about Sarek and his character and wondering if it's consistent with that, or if it's going for a different, a different take, or who knows, maybe they'll throw in some things that, uh, that disregard some of what's established in this book. We don't know. Um, but I, it's definitely going to be on my mind for sure. And I'm glad that, um, that we did this and that I reread this book. So it'd be fresh in my mind when, when we see the first couple episodes. 
with yeah, this is really unique for me because I I was in the middle of this of reading this book and then saw the first two episodes of Discovery and then came back to the book. Hmm. So, but it 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 didn't really change things too much to me because I think you know I feel like we know the Sarek character, and even though I feel like we've gotten a little more in depth information, we've learned a little more about him in this book. He does the character didn't really change that much for me. So then, looking at Discovery, uh, Sarek is Sarek in Discovery also. So. What happened then when I went back to reading the book, I I almost started to get the, the two mixed up. Like, I started to get to the point where, not just, the, I don't mean just the actors, but I started to think, well, wait, 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 wait. The thing I'm just thinking about right now that Sarek said, I think that was in Discovery, not this book. Like, I started to get them confused. Because I do really feel like in Discovery, Sarek is represented correctly and it's the Sarek that we know real well and that characterization i think melds well with this book so i think the two complement each other really well were you tempted Excellent. to uh to draw james frayne as Sarek on the cover of your book after you saw the premiere <laughs> no i didn't i didn't want to draw him but <laughs> i should have taken my Sarek book in there with and had him sign it that would have been mm. interesting mm. That's a neat idea. That would have been kind of cool, actually. You'd yeah. probably say, it I didn't makes... know there was a book about my character. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that that is probably what he would say. I was going to say, I wonder if, you know, there's some sort of influence from this book, if he's been made aware of it. I don't know. I mean, if, if people on Discovery are reading The Final Reflection, then anything's possible for what they're going into. That's true. You may yeah. have read this, yeah. That'd be an interesting question to ask him, for sure. I, I suspect the answer would probably be no but i would I still know. be interested it's always possible he could have listened to the audio book too that's a good point and actually i wanted to bring up the audio book i did not listen to the audio book for this one but i would be remiss if i didn't point out that i've had it recommended several times since i've mentioned that i've been reading this book will win in particular would probably strangle me if i didn't mention the audio book he speaks he brings it up a lot on Facebook and that sort of thing. It's narrated by Mark Leonard and is apparently very, very good. Uh, so, you know, if you get the chance to listen to the audiobook for Sarek, uh, leave a comment in the Babel conference on the, on the show post for this and let us know what you think. I don't, I don't think any of us listened to the audiobook, did we? No, you know, it, it for me, when I'm, when I've been reading these books, it's it's the kind of thing where I have to read them. I've never really in a setting where an audiobook actually makes sense, unfortunately. So mm-hmm. I haven't gotten that experience, but I have definitely heard from a lot of people that this one's great and there are a lot of others that are really great. So, you know, if it's possible, definitely check it out. Well, we'll uh, probably... I'd love to hear your guys' final thoughts and uh, rating for Sarek. So, uh, Justin, why don't we start with you on that one? Yeah, you know, I it, it's interesting rereading this novel because there's only a couple of Trek novels that I've reread at, at this point. Um, so the first time that I went through it a couple of months ago, I was like, wow, this book is really amazing. I, I love it. There's a lot of great stuff going on. You learn so much about Sarek and Amanda and Spock. And, you know, as we ter- talked about Peter Kirk and Valdir, really interesting characters. They do some interesting things with Camerag. There's all this stuff going on, right? And in rereading it, the the thought that i had was all of that stuff is is great but 
you know, and I think you indicated this a little bit, Dan, when you kind of skip past it, what's supposed to be the main part of the action with the, the Freelands and this whole Romulan plot, it made me wonder, because this is like a 400-page book, right? It made me wonder if some of that was cut back and there was even more that was about Sarek and Amanda and, and Spock and, you know, the Klingons dealing with the aftermath of, of Star Trek VI, if it would have been even better, that there was something in rereading it like the first time it was really exciting, like, wow, what's happening? And they're going all over the place. But um, my interest wandered a little bit um, in those parts that were, were about this this Freeland plot and all of the stuff that, that was going on with that. So I think I, I would have liked to see more actually about Sarek than, than we got. I mean, we got quite a bit, but it wasn't quite as much the focus as I thought it, it might be. So that might affect my rating a, a little bit, but... Um, I would still give it uh, eight out of ten. Angry Spocks. Ooh, <laughs> that's a charged rating for sure. <laughs> I mean that in a good way. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. But it's interesting because, like, when I first read it, I probably would have given it a nine out of ten. But I think I took it down a peg because I was like, yeah, I, I don't know. It could have been structured a little bit different. That's not to say it isn't an excellent novel. This is one of the best Trek novels I think I've I've read. But I could just see those places where it could be improved and where I felt like I was kind of skipping through certain parts of what was supposed to be the, you know, the main action and the main danger to the Federation. Excellent. Bruce, what are your kind of final thoughts on this one? I really enjoyed the book more than I thought. Uh, I, I've read some reviews where people are always comparing it to Spock's world, and I don't really think that's a fair comparison. I feel like Spock's world is more I think it delves into Vulcan society more so than this. This is more about family. This is about Sarek, Amanda, and Spock for the most part. And yes, we do get some information information about Vulcan society, and we get a Star Trek adventure and dealing with other cultures, trying to get along and such. But I really feel, in a lot of ways, it's kind of like a love letter to the Sarek and Amanda character characters. So I would... I on Goodreads I gave it five stars out of five, but I wouldn't. I, it's probably more like four and a half, four seventy. I I don't maybe yeah like four point seven or something. But I would definitely give this book to all of Sarek's children, no matter how many children he has, <laughs> or adopted children, or adopted children, Excellent. or stepchildren, <laughs> or children he just walked by, whatever. <laughs> Excellent. Yeah, I speaking as someone who's, you know, reading this for the first time, I really enjoyed this book. Uh, the character moments with Sarek and Amanda were really, really well done. And I really found myself enjoying the secondary characters as well. The Peter Kirk character and his whole arc I thought was really interesting. You know, maybe the the Kobayashi Maru bit on the end was a little bit, oh, okay, felt a little bit tacked on, but at the same time gave a nice little wrap up to his character and you know the the main plot like we talked about there there's a lot going on there's the whole freeland plan there's the rescue on chronos with crashing a shuttle and like there there is a lot of actiony stuff that happens in here but to me that stuff all feels very secondary very much a backdrop to the character story like bruce you said sarek amanda and spock are kind of the main focus of this and also, like I mentioned, I really loved that um, uh, the the journal 
aspect of the story, that that kind of literary device to keep Amanda in the story, even after she had passed away with Sarek learning about more about his wife than he knew when she was alive. And the idea of Spock eventually reading these journals as well is kind of heartwarming to me. Like I, I, I know it would just be a repeat of what we saw with the journals, but I'd love to see Spock reading these and his reaction to what's going on and that sort of thing as well. So, you know, this story, I don't think I can give it less than I would say five out of five miniature stolen Klingon birds of prey. I really, really liked this one. All right. Well, uh, Justin, why don't you tell our listeners where they can find you on the interwebs or elsewhere, I guess, if you want them to stalk you in real life. (laughs) Well, no, I won't be giving out my home address today, but... Uh, (laughs) you can find me elsewhere on the network uh, co-hosting Earl Grey that's our dedicated TNG podcast I co-host that with Amy Nelson and Richard Marquez we have a great time talking about TNG every week Uh, you can also find me on Twitter I'm at trekfan4747 where I tweet about nothing but Star Trek and I'm currently tweeting out my TNG season 3 rewatch you can find me hanging around the Babel conference on Facebook And I also wanted to mention that there are a couple of uh, Facebook groups that are dedicated to Star Trek novels uh, that I participate in quite a bit, putting up book reviews and, and, uh, you know, putting in a lot of comments, a lot of participation. That's the Star Trek Books Discussion Group, the Star Trek Books Community Group, and literally Star Trek. So you can find me there as well. Lots of places to find me. Awesome. Well, thank you so much for being on the show. It's always a pleasure to have you on. Oh, it's, it's great being here. Uh, such a pleasure reading the books, but then talking of, talking with someone about it is great because usually I just read it and I'm like, okay, what's the next one? <laughs> but so, uh, yeah, it's <laughs> nice to just just talk about it in in this setting. Yep, that's what I've been done for like whatever twenty five years, and now I finally get to talk to people about the books. <laughs> <laughs> it's our, like our own little mini Star Trek book club. I love it. So I really enjoyed the fact that we're exploring these books from the past that don't of course when they're written didn't have a connection to discovery but in some ways they do now because harry mudd and Sarek are characters that are going to appear in discovery and it's fun to kind of go back to these books right now and and just kind of get used to these characters from the book standpoint and see how that will fit well into the series yeah i think this one to me anyway, this is just kind of a guess on my part, will have a little bit more relevance to Discovery than Mud in Your Eye did, for instance. I feel like, I don't know, the character of Sarek, he's a bit more consistent than Mud, and I feel like this one gave me some interesting insights that I'm really looking forward to kind of thinking about while we watch Discovery in a few days. And uh, yeah, we'll see how that plays out. Of course, by the time this episode is out, you guys out there listening will already know and uh, puts puts an advantage over us. I already know, Dan. Yeah, I know. I'm trying to ignore (laughs) that fact. (laughs) Dan's bummed out. He can't wait. (laughs) No, actually, I'm thrilled for Bruce. It's if you corner him in the Babel conference, get him to tell you the story of how he got to go to the discovery premiere. It really is something. I think we're going to write a book. I would definitely read that book, but 
getting into premieres in the unlikeliest of ways are not is not the only thing we've been talking about on Trek FM. So here's a quick look at some of the other things you may have missed elsewhere on the network. Previously on Trek.fm, Literary Treks. Yeah, so Trip, of course, is working to take down Section 31. Um, we as Star Trek fans who have watched all of the shows and read a bunch of other novels know how that's ultimately going to go. But in this story, he's, you know, kind of convinced that Harris is Section 31, kind of the be-all and end-all. He's at the top. It's his own private little army that he's constructed, and Trip is aiming to take them down. The 602 Club. And this is happening a lot more in the Star Wars books, and I, I think it's because it allows them freedom, which is to do books that become character studies. And I think it's very clear that this book, in a lot of ways, is a character study of who this person is and what it is that causes the actions that we see in The Force Awakens to make more sense. Stage 9, a podcast about the people who make Star Trek. By getting people like Braga to come on board and work on this show, what they're going to be doing is deconstructing that thing that they did for all those years on Star Trek. Earl Grey. Is there anything else we need to add, or do we think that's the? Are we going to are we going to cure Riker or? <laughs> oh shoot! I forgot about Riker. Yeah, sure, fine. We'll keep him around. Yeah, we've cured Riker, and then uh, for for me, this would yeah or, or not. <laughs> and that's what else is happening on Trek.fm. Check out all of these shows and join the conversation about your favorite corner of the Star Trek universe and beyond. You'll find us wherever you get your podcasts. And if you're an Apple user, be sure to hit the subscribe button in Apple Podcasts on iPhone, iPad, or Apple TV, or the desktop iTunes app to get the latest episodes as soon as they are published. And please leave us a star rating and a written review. Now, if you're not an Apple user, we got you covered. You can find our shows on Google Play, Music, Stitcher, TuneIn, Spreaker, SoundCloud, Windows Phone, and in most third-party apps. And you can stream and download the MP3 file from our website, or grab the RSS link. If you'd like to help us keep all of our shows coming to you each week, you can become a patron of the network on Patreon. We'd really appreciate your help. Visit patreon.com slash trekfm, that's p-a-t-r-e-o-n dot com slash trekfm to get all of the details. Perks include early access to episodes, exclusive content, producer credits, and more available through our special patrons website, Patron Zone. It requires a great deal of money to produce, host, and distribute these shows each month. We really appreciate any support you can give us, and we hope you'll join the team. Again, you'll find all of the details at patreon.com slash trekfm. We'd love to hear your thoughts on today's show, and there are many ways you can do that. And the best place is to join the larger conversation in the Babel Conference. It's our listeners group on Facebook. All you got to do is go to Facebook and type in Babel, B-A-B-E-L, into the search field on Facebook and it should come right up. And if you'd like to send us an email, you can do that too by just going to our website at trek.fm slash contact and you can fill out the form. And that will be sent right to us once you choose Literary Treks. We'll get that email and uh, maybe we'll read it on the show. And you can also find us on Twitter at Trek FM and on Facebook 
at facebook.com slash trekfm. And special for literary treks, you can find us on our Goodreads group, where we have bookshelves with all of our previously covered books, as well as the currently reading section, so you know what's coming up for future shows. Plus, there are great conversations happening about all the books and comics in the Star Trek universe. Just search for Literary Treks on Goodreads and click Join Group. We'd like to thank Ken Tripp, Greg Rosier, Brandon Chamutala, and Justin Ozer for their support of the Trek FM network and for being associate producers for Literary Treks as well. Well, Bruce, when you're not negotiating with Klingon warlords who aren't really sure why they attacked that planet, where can we find you? You can, can, you can find me controlling their minds. I'm controlling the Klingons' minds. But you can find me on Twitter... And this is what I do. I control their minds to follow me on Twitter. I'm at Admiral underscore Rex. So that's where you can find me on Twitter. And you can also find me elsewhere here on the network on The Edge on the Live from The Edge show, which is Monday nights at 9 p.m. Eastern, 6 p.m. Pacific. And it's our live reaction to each episode of Star Trek Discovery. And you can find me talking Star Wars on the Star Wars Report podcast at Star Wars Report. Dot com. And of course, you can find me in the Babel Conference. And Dan, when you're not making love to a Klingon, where can people find you? Wow. Um, <laughs> I didn't know that you knew about that. That's uh, that's disturbing. I just figured well, that's you... where the scars came from. <laughs> you noticed those, did you? I thought I wore the collar a little higher today. Well, uh, when I'm not doing that, you can find me on Twitter. I'm at Kurtrats. That's K-E-R-T-R-A-T-S. You can find me on YouTube.com slash Productions, where I talk about all things Star Trek and the Orville lately. Uh, you can also find me, of course, on the Babel Conference, responding to posts, posting things about Star Trek, all that sort of thing. Well, thank you all very much for listening, and until next time, live long and read on. What do you call that light reading? To each his own, number one.